The technique we are continuing our study in the Epistle to the Ephesians. And the subject before us this evening is the middle wall of partition. The passage being Ephesians 2 verses 11 to 19. It is our habit in these readings to read a portion of scripture together. And those who are listening to this recording, if they choose, we suggest that they switch off for the time being and read what might at first be a rather strange portion, the 11th chapter of the book of Leviticus. This 11th chapter of Leviticus gives you some little idea of the state of mind that the Jew must be in, remembering these warnings about making himself abominable and rendering himself unclean when he came into contact with Gentiles. You can sympathise with the need that they felt to withdraw themselves. You can understand the timidity of Peter when at long last, seeing the liberty of the Christians, he did eat with the Gentiles. But then he was brought up before the church to give an account of himself for so doing. Let us be sympathetic with these people because by understanding their actions and their attitude, we should appreciate the better the liberty that we have today in the church, which is the body of Christ. And that will come before us very vividly in Ephesians chapter 2, which we're about to consider. We have looked at chapter 2 in the opening section, but I'd like you to compare now, if you will, the way in which the first part of chapter 2 deals with the question of sin, and the second part of chapter 2 has no reference to sin, but deals just with the disability of having been born a Gentile. Now the question of sin is a matter of responsibility. But no one is held responsible by God for having been, having been born a Gentile instead of a Jew. And yet, these things have to be considered, and they're considered here. So we do notice chapter 2, in the first few verses, we have what they were like in time past. And we have such words as these in this section. Dead, purposes, sins, children of disobedience, children of wrath, and then they are made alive, they are saved by grace. And as a consequence, they become new creatures, as we find in verse 10. We are his workmanship created. When we turn our attention to verse 11 onwards, we are not dealing with people who are sinners, but with people who are Gentiles. There's no word for sin in verse 12. They are without Christ. They are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They're strangers from the covenants of promise. They have no hope. They're without God in the world. And verse 13 doesn't say that they are saved and their sins are forgiven. That doesn't come into the question. They are far off, and they are made nigh. So in the first section, they need to be saved, and in the second section, the distance needs to be reached. We want to keep that in mind, because if you don't, and you suddenly look at verse 14, he is our peace, or at the end of verse 15, so making peace, 
You just think, oh, that's the peace which we have because we are believers and we have our sins forgiven. But it's not the peace between the sinner and his God. It's the peace between one section of the believer and the other, which we're going to see vividly brought before us in a moment. In both of these sections, the flesh and the world have their place. In the early verses, verses 2 and 3, we have the walking according to the course of this world, and in verse 3, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, the world and the flesh, having its relationship to sin. But when we come to the second section, we read in verse 11, that the Gentiles, they were Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. You notice, the Gentile is in the flesh, but so also is the Jew. We distinctly told in Romans 9, he had great concern for his brethren according to the flesh, and Israel according to the flesh were the ones to whom the promises were made in the adoption belonged in the flesh. No one can compete with Israel in the flesh. But when we come to this section, we discover that there's the world as well, the world and the flesh. They were Gentiles in the flesh, and they were without God in the world. What an abandoned position that sounds, doesn't it? Well now the next thing, let's examine the way in which the wording of these uh, verses 14 to 18 uh, give us the progress of the subject and lift it out for us. It starts with verse 14, for he is our peace. And it ends with verse 18, that we have access by one spirit under the Father. <coughs> access is the thing in front of us all the time. And something has been is here spoken of as preventing that access. And that something has been removed. And then, those who once were aliens and strangers in verse 12 discover that they are no more strangers and foreigners, but are now fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So it's been brought right through to a most blessed and glorious conclusion. Will you cast your eye at the bottom of this chart, first of all, and notice the structure of verses 14 to 18. You see it falls into two sections. It opens with the words, He is our peace. And that section ends with the words, So, make it peace. He is our peace at the beginning, and after the work is done, He is the one accredited with having made it. Well, we go back again and we see the both one. In your version, there is no the in front of the word both. And there's no the in front of the word train. But in the four occurrences of both and train in this section, the the is inserted. It is some particular both that is in view all the time. The both one. And the other end, the train one. And then we approach something which needs a, a bit of more explanation. It speaks about breaking down the middle wall of partition that was between us. And that is balanced by the ordinances or the decrees that have been abolished. So whatever the middle wall is, it looks as though we get an expansion of its meaning that the ordinances that have been abolished 
are represented by it. We see that presently. And in the theatre, we have the enmity. Wherever you get the need for reconciliation or the emphasis upon peace, the opposite, of course, will be enmity. And there's enmity here. Well, now it picks up the story again in the next section. It opens with the words that you might be reconciled, this company, to God. And it ends with access to the Father. Reconciliation to God is one of the steps toward the goal. And the goal is not merely reconciled to God, but access to the Father. And then, the reconciliation is in one body. But the access is in one spirit. You see, we're advancing all the time, aren't we? And then, in the centre, we have that this is through the cross and through him. Of course, the cross is valueless without him. And once more, the enmity which has been slain, verse 16. Now, that's a very perfect little pattern. If you could see it, as I trust those who are listening to this recording will also be able to see it in the chart that's provided with them. It's almost a witness of itself, of the superintendence of the Spirit of God. Well now we must turn our attention to the actual wording of the whole passage and particularly seek to understand what this middle wall represents. First of all, we'll just pick up verse 11 and notice as we've already observed, that he's addressing these now as Gentiles. In verse 2, in time past, you were sinners. In verse 11, in time past, you were Gentiles. So that we are not now considering their need of a saviour, we are considering that they are Gentiles, whatever they do. And a Gentile had no place in the covenant relationships which God had established between himself and the people of Israel. Something must be done, not only to bring these Gentiles into salvation, but something must be done if they're going to live peaceably with those who were under that dominion in their early lives that we read about in Revelation, uh, in Leviticus chapter 11. And of course chapter 11 is only one chapter. But the time you plough through Leviticus, and discover the things that can make you an abomination in the sight of God and unclean if you're under that law, you wonder if you'll ever sit down and eat anything. When somebody recommends you to have a nice Dover soul, well, a Jew couldn't have a Dover soul for his breakfast, not to save his life. It has neither fins, nor does it go straight through the water. It clounders up and down in the mud. So he's not allowed to take it. Then, of course, somebody read, and I wondered how they were feeling when they read it, that they could eat beetles. I don't know whether you'd ever like to eat beetles, but there you are, you see. These strange prohibitions and strange permissions. What a life it must have been, everlastingly watching out to see that you didn't transgress this or didn't transgress that. And there were little snares in the way. You may say, oh, this animal chews the cud, that's all right, but it doesn't part the hoof, and you're caught. Or, this parts the hoof, all right, that's a pig but he doesn't chew the cud, so you're caught again. And all these things have their counterparts in the spiritual world. We can easily be taken in by halfway measures, and perhaps they take us in more than anything else. Appearances are not enough. They may be often deceptive. 
I've got just one little revision here of the words in verse 12. Our version says that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Dr. J. Armitage Robinson, who has written a commentary on Ephesians, among other features, puts it this way, that at that time, without Christ, ye were aliens. And it's very suggestive, and it does give you a little idea of what the Apostle was saying. It's not that they were aliens, pure and simple. They were aliens because they were without Christ. And I think we can all say, well, that was me right enough. And if they were without Christ and therefore aliens, if they're in Christ, that alienation is gone. When we get to the next section of this uh, great epistle, 4, 5 and 6, we've got another alienation to notice, but I think we'll look at it in a moment. Chapter 4 and 18. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance of it in them because of the blindness of their heart. There's an alienation which is deep enough. Alienating the life of God. And just as in chapter 2, it emerges in one new man, verse 15, so in chapter 4, it emerges in a new man, uh, in the verses that follow, verse um, 22, 23, and 24 of chapter 4 putting on the new man. One other thing may have struck you, that we've got some of the ingredients of the unity of the Spirit already in chapter 2. The one body, the one Spirit, the one Father. They're there. So when he at last says, now keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and then when you're reading the original, you read in the bond of the peace, and then you say, what peace? Oh, you see, I know, it's the piece already explained in chapter 2. When we are keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of the peace, it's this piece which blots out all the distinction between a Jew and a Gentile and makes a new man of him so completely that all enmity is gone. Well, now I think it's time for us to turn our attention to this figure. This question of the middle wall. There are other items which we may come back to, but as this is so important, we'll give it first place. What is the meaning of this middle wall? You will see on the top of the chart a very rough, diagrammatic representation of the temple as it stood in Jerusalem. It wasn't that shape. Uh, it's merely a matter of showing you there was an outside court with a series of steps that led up. There was the court of the women with another series of steps. And then there was the great altar, and beyond that, inside was the Holy of Holies. A series of barricades preventing one form or another and not allowing them to go any further. Well now, let's put ourselves back into the days of the early apostles. Peter has at last had his eyes open to see that Cornelius could be saved. Although he was a bit diffident about it. He told Cornelius to his face that had he not received that vision, he would have called him still common and unclean, and as a Jew, he would never have walked with him. But he did. So Cornelius and Peter are now walking together through the streets of Jerusalem 
making their way to the temple. And on the way, they're rejoicing together to think that at last they have a common salvation, that the same saviour that saved Peter is the saviour that saved Cornelius. And then they suddenly get a jot. Peter says to Cornelius, Oh, I'm so sorry. You mustn't come a step further. But he says, Am I not one in Christ with you, Peter? And Peter doesn't quite know how to answer. He says, Oh, no, he says, You mustn't come a stage further. I can go right into the temple. But have a look and see what it says here, Cornelius, before you step further. Well, now, in the providence of God, we can actually see the stone that was built into the barricade of the temple, which Christ himself must have read many a time, and which the Apostle Paul must have read, and which, to which he referred. And if any time you would like to see that actual stone, which your Saviour looked at and which is mentioned here, you go to the offices of the Palestine Exploration Fund, just the back of Oxford Street, you can walk in, the door's open, and there it is. Now that was lost. But in the year 1871, someone in Jerusalem noticed a piece of stone that was built into the bottom of a cemetery wall, and it looked as though it had a few Greek letters upon it. And so he got permission to remove the stone and clean it. And when he did, here was a stone which we knew should exist, and nobody knew where it had gone. Because the temple had been so completely destroyed, as our Saviour said, that not one stone was left upon another. This precious stone was embedded in the wall of a cemetery. Well, now you see, I've given you the Greek on the one side, but I've given you an interpretation or translation of it on the other. Well, for the benefit of those folks who are listening to the recording, who wouldn't be able to understand the Greek if we read it, and incidentally so possibly you won't, we'll give only the English translation. This is what Paul referred to. No one being a foreigner may enter into the enclosure around the holy place. Whosoever is apprehended will himself be to blame for his death, which will certainly follow. Now that was there. It's interesting to know that before this stone was found, this is what anybody could read in Josephus, who lived at the same, very near the same period as the Apostle Paul, and described the destruction of Jerusalem himself. This is what he wrote. On advancing to the second temple, a stone balustrade was thrown around it four feet and a half high, and with all beautifully wrought. Over it stood pillars of equal distance, Proclaiming the law of purity. See, this law of purity, what you must do and what you mustn't do. Some in Greek, some in Roman letters. That no alien might pass within the sanctuary. Such was the first enclosure. And, far from it, in the middle, was the second, ascended by a few steps, and enclosed by a stone balustrade as a petition, which prohibited by inscription any alien from entering under the penalty of death. Now, until 1871, Pope sat to take it on good faith that Josephus was telling the truth. And 1871 says Josephus was very trustworthy, for he did speak the truth, and there's the same. Well, now to that, 
Wir fahren so weit, da liegt schon. This middle wall was not something that stood between merely between a sinner and his God. But it stood between a believer. It was something that kept a believer out. And the bunch and the train which we have in these verses are not the sinner and his God, but the Jewish believer and the Gentile believer. You see, you, start, you follow the story in the Acts of the Apostles. Paul goes to a synagogue. When he went to Antioch, when he went to Corinth, when he went to these places, he didn't find a chapel like this. He didn't find even a mission hall. He couldn't find a church or a cathedral. He went straight to the synagogue where the majority of those who worshipped there were Jews. But there were Gentiles who joined in with the Jews. Some became proselytes and some were just on the outside fringe. And so... We read in the, the 13th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles that when Paul stood up to address them in the synagogue, he said, Men and brethren of the stock of Abraham and whosoever among you feareth God. And, they and then we're told the Gentiles approached him and said, Oh, could they have a message given to them afterwards? So the Gentiles were listening. But all this time, this 11th chapter of Leviticus was governing their lives. And when a few Jews in the synagogue believed Christ, and a few Gentiles believed Christ, well, they began to realize that they dropped their Jewish position, and they dropped their Gentile position. They'd given up any attempt of being justified by law. And yet, what are they going to do about all these abominations and these unclean deeds? You know how when Paul wrote to the Corinthians about it, he said, well, yes. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. Doesn't matter. He said, strictly speaking, if they offer a, an animal to an idol before they kill it for meat, well, the idol's only a lump of stones and that's all right. But, he said, but, supposing someone with a weaker conscience says, well, I can't understand how you can eat that. He says, now, for the other one's conscience, not your own. He said, so far as I'm concerned, I'm at liberty to eat this and drink that and go here and do this, but I will neither eat flesh nor drink wine or do anything to make my brother stumble. So you see, it was a very vexed question in the very beginning of the church. When we come a stage further <coughs> and read, say, the epistle to the Romans, there, if anywhere, we are going to get the basic teaching concerning our acceptance in Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God, in whom also we have access. The many words we've got here. Romans 5, peace and access. And yet we've only got to go to Romans 11 to discover the church of the one body, isn't there? How's that? Well, he told the Gentile believers that they were only likened to wild olives, graft, contrary to nature, into the olive tree. Well, that's no figure to represent the body of Christ where all members are perfectly equal. To remind one section of them that they are wild and it's contrary to nature and they're only taking the place of some that have been broken out because of unbelief and God can restore them once more. You see? So there's all this had to be settled. Consequently, 
this middle wall of partition became a symbol that the Apostle used. Now it says here that the enmity which needed to be removed was contained in ordinances. Now of course, if we were unscrupulous, seeing that we do not observe the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper in this meeting, we could make capital out of this and say, there you are, there's our position. But that would be very, very untrue. This does not refer either to baptism or to the Lord's Supper. There's no enmity there. There was something in these ordinances that are here being disposed of that made a barrier between one group of believer and the other. Now, of course, one of the best things to do when we are considering a testament like this is to make sure we've got the right word. This word is translated elsewhere by the word decree. And I'm going to ask you to turn to the Acts of the Apostles, 16th chapter, to discuss The Acts of the Apostles, the 16th chapter, verse 4 and 5. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. So were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. You notice the word decree in verse 4 and the word ordained. Well, they're the same word now in verse. So you could translate it. They delivered them the decrees that were decreed or the ordinances that were ordained, or you could twist it round, they delivered them the ordinances that were decreed, they're one and the same word. So here we have the ordinances of Ephesians 2. But you say, they were actually taken by the apostle and given to the church. Yes. So we must go back to chapter 15 to discover why. There were two questions that had to be solved very quickly in the early church. The first one was propounded by the Pharisees who believed, verse 5 of chapter 15, saying it was necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and command them to keep the law of Moses. And when they had a meeting over this, Peter himself stood up and gave his testimony. It says in verse 7, And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel of believe, and God which knoweth the hearts bear their witness, giving them the Holy Ghost even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they. Well, that's a clear statement. That the council at Jerusalem were urged by Peter not to impose the law of Moses upon any Gentile as a means of making his salvation secure. But that wasn't the only question that was before them. There was another one. And so we read a little further down <coughs> in verse uh, 19, Wherefore my sentence is 
that we trouble not men which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them, that they abstain from pollution of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. Now this is the question that was agitated them. They said, you know, while these Gentiles may be believers, they're doing such abominable things that we, we hardly like to touch them or get near to them. We're contaminated ourselves. Where do we come in? You see, this is a very serious matter for these people who were Jews and yet believed. Fancy having to write to the Gentile believers and urge them to abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication. Now, quite apart from the question of being strangled and from blood. And then notice the addition that James has here in verse 21. For Moses, of old time, and in every city, then the preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. So he doesn't set the law aside. He says, you see, that law is still announced every Sabbath. Or he says, you need English to think that it's all going to be broken. We won't impose upon the Gentile Leviticus 11 and the Leviticus whatever it is, all the whole lot of it, all. Oh, no, he says, I can quite see that. But we'll ask them as a concession to abstain, abstain from these four outstanding, very necessary things. So, verse 23. Oh, verse 22. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas mainly Judas, Sergei, Barthabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And here is the letter that they sent round these churches. Verse 24. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverted your souls, saying, ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by now. For it seemed good, and as it comes again, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, and here it comes again, that ye have studied from these, offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, for which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. And so they were sent on their mission, and they took it round to the churches. And the Apostle Paul endorsed it, and took it to this church, which is mentioned here, these churches which are mentioned here, in the 16th chapter of the Acts. But it was a temporary measure, it could not last when the Jew passed out into his present blindness. It could not last when a new company was going to be formed who were called the body of Christ, whose relationship one to another was on equal terms, as you can gather from chapter 3, verse 3, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and the same body and partakers. It's got an emphasis there which we'll have to examine when we get to it later on. A threefold fellowship of equality. So, why are we not going to say that because we are members of the body of Christ and because we are saved now under these new terms 
we could eat any stuff we like because we're stately. We might be wise to observe some of these things without putting ourselves under law. But all that distinction has gone. The little wall which was growing in the synagogue has gone. It is our custom at some of the meetings when they're over to invite the friends who come to the Bible reading to just go downstairs and partake of a little refreshment before they leave the chapel. Well, we've never had to set up two distinct tables down there so that you won't feel contaminated by having your tea out of the same cup or out of the same pot or touching the same tablecloth that somebody else has. But if it had been in the synagogue, they would have to have had two tables and two sets of crockery and two sets of things to wash them up. Oh, yes. And while that went on, the middle wall of partition was growing between them so that there was no possibility of the church of the one body being brought into existence while that remained. So let's come back to Ephesians 2 and observe a few more features. You will notice what a distinct difference there is between the position of the people of Israel in the flesh and the Gentile in the flesh. Let's observe the way in which Paul has described Israel's position in Romans 9 so that we get immediately the contrast in Ephesians 2. This is what he says in Romans 9. At the end of verse 3, he's speaking about his brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenant and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promise, whose are the fathers, and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. So Israel, they had the Christ according to the flesh, says that. But the Gentiles had no Christ according to the flesh. It says so. You can only come into contact with Christ on the ground of the Spirit. You've got no approach to him on the ground of the flesh. Don't you remember Paul writes in another epistle? Even though we have known Christ after the flesh, henceforth we know him so no more. The moment you reach a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, it's not Christ after the flesh, it's Christ according to the Spirit. Well now, in contrast to those wonderful privileges which we just read about in Romans 9 about Israel according to the flesh, oh, they're just opposite when we read about the disability of being a Gentile in Ephesians 2, verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ. See, the Jew always entertained the promise of the coming of Christ. It was a part of his national hope and make-up. But the Gentile hadn't got such a hope and a make-up. There was never any record that one day from some woman of Israel should be born the promised Redeemer. But the Israelites entertained that, rightly so. And so with all the others. The Gentiles were aliens. They were strangers. The covenants of promise were not made to them or to their fathers. They were neither, they had neither hope, nor could they call God their God in this world. All that's now resolved. But now in Christ Jesus, don't they, you, you who were sinners, that you sometimes were far off, are made die by the blood of Christ. 
for them has cancelled all these obligations. The middle wall of partition has gone. I want you to notice in verse 15 to correct these words. Instead of reading, for to make in himself of twain one new man, that word make is exactly the same word that we've got here in verse 10, created. There's no possibility of doubting it. You've only got to look it up in the original. It's a new creation we're dealing with. And I stress this because there are some who attempt to make the church of Ephesians chapter 2 a mere development of the church of the Acts of the Apostles. This is not an evolution, friend, of something which started in the Acts of the Apostles. This is a creation that begins here. He has, of the two, created one new man, so making peace. Now, I'd like you to look at this chart again. I don't know whether any of you have ever kept bees. You know enough about them not to fall into the strange comment that a visitor made to a country house when they served him with tea and a pot of honey on the table. He says, Ooh, I see you keep a bee. Well, I've kept not one bee, but thousands of them. And well, we knew it sometimes. But I'm going to borrow from beekeeping a little illustration. In the centre of that plot of grass, there are two hives standing. Two hives. And when the season comes for the honey to start flowing, if the beekeeper only could cut down his overhead expenses, if instead of having two managers and two typewriters and two cash desks, he could have one, there'd be more profit, wouldn't there? But the bother is, you can't get these bees to unite. They'll fight. But you, you have the work of the world. So it's no good giving them a report or a balance sheet and talking to them. They won't listen. They get about their buzziness all the time. But the beekeeper does something. If he serves the bee, not rules them, but does just exactly what the bee wants, he may get his own way. That's a good policy for most of us too, apart from beekeeping. So what he does is this. When it's a nice fine morning, sun's up and the bees are flying out to get the honey, they go back two miles away. When they're all out flying, what he does, he takes the eyes, which you see, and puts them at the other end of the garden, right away. And he puts another one in the middle, where the two stood. And in that one, he's got all the flames ready, all the wax ready. Well, now the bees come back laden with honey and very tired and they almost drop. But they come right back to where their hive was. And then they're puzzled. Two lots of them are going in the same entrance. But they can't fight one another because their consciousness isn't their hive. You see what you've done? You've made one new hive, so making peace. Neither of them can say that it's mine. This is an entirely obliteration of that stock. They're not Jews or Gentiles in these hives. They're one new created stock. And they accept it, and they work together under one roof. Well, that's a very perhaps strange illustration, but it comes to our head, that there was made, actually made, of the two, something new. 
So that in the church of the one body there's no Jew. But there's no Gentile as such. They're a new creation in Christ and they're called the one body. Now all these regulations and rules that are imposed upon the early have no place here. And we must see to it, friends, they have no place. For the first obligation upon us in this Ephesians is not merely to preach or to teach, but the first obligation is that we endeavour to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of the peace which has been made here. One or two other features, I think, are necessary before we bring this to a close. The word alien is made up of the same root word that gives us the word stranger, naturally, but gives us the word reconcile. You see, you've got here in this chapter aliens, you've got strangers, you've got foreigners, and you've got reconciliation, where they're all built on the one word, alos, other. An alien is another, doesn't belong to the same group, other. And apokatalasso, which is the word for reconciliation, is the same alos, bringing them back again. That's one thought. Another one that you do well to remember is that the word commonwealth, it's a word that's come into our language and we speak of the commonwealth of nations and so on, but this is, strictly speaking, the word citizenship. Polite humour, citizenship. You'll notice it recurs at the, in verse 19. It says, fellow citizens. Now, of course, an English reader would not cast his eye back immediately to verse 12 and say, oh, well, that's cancelled that out. But you see, you must. If we put citizenship in verse 12, being aliens from the citizenship of Israel, then when we are told we're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens on equal terms, well, you see what a new position has been brought in. So that's valuable. And you must remember that this is the same word that we get in Philippians 3. I think we ought to get that, because it's the positive statement. Ephesians is the negative, and Philippians gives you the positive. Verse 20, chapter 3. For our conversation, again, is the word polite citizenship, for our citizenship is in heaven. Here's a new citizenship then, it's in heaven. The citizenship that Israel rejoiced in was the Jerusalem, which is on the earth. That was their citizenship. And the scripture says that when the day comes to reckon up and they say, I was born here, I was born there, but it's a rich man was born there. Jerusalem, citizenship, that nobody else could have, except those who were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That's gone here. You needn't worry that they won't let you go into the Jerusalem on the earth. And there's every likelihood that you as members of the one body won't walk the golden streets of the new Jerusalem. But don't worry about that. You've got a citizenship which is in heaven, far above all. A citizenship belongs to every calling. And each one has its distinctive characteristics. There have been some who have said that we ought not to translate the word strangers from the covenants of promise. We ought to translate it guests. Guests. Because the word, I think in one particular case, may refer to a host who looks after a stranger. So I thought you might like to get one or two references 
where this word stranger occurs elsewhere, just to check the translation. Matthew 25, you'll know it almost without turning to it. I was a stranger, and he took me in. I don't think you could say, I was a guest. Not when I say this in those words. It couldn't possibly fit. Or chapter 27, verse 7 of Matthew. We'll begin another reference. And they took counsel and bought for them the potter's field to bury guests in, or I don't think so, to bury strangers in. And then again we get in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. I'm missing a great number, but you can look the whole up if you will. Hebrews 11, verse 13, it says about Abraham and the others with him. You remember, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims, not guests. And the last one, I think it's good enough, 1 Peter 4.12. 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, think it not a strange, not strange concerning the party trial, which will try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. You see, I'm quoting from the writings of one who believes that the, the, the earlier epistles of Paul are all a part of the church of the one body, and the good love of the Acts of the Apostles is all a part of the church of the one body. Well, consequently, instead of saying that we were strangers, he says we were guests, and now we've stepped up a bit. Oh no. We haven't stepped up anywhere. It's been obliterated, it's been abolished, it's been destroyed, and a new creation has come in instead. And so we get now to the conclusion of this. And that he might reconcile both the both unto God in one body. The big problem is, and I don't know that anyone can come down absolutely on one side of the fence. Does this mean in the one body, which is the type of the church? Or does it refer to that one body that he offered on the cross? Well, honestly, I don't know. I've tried, I've, I've got the structure out. But there are two passages in the structure which balance one another and uh, leave you still guessing. The other passage is um, where it says in chapter 5 about the, the body of the person, the husband and the wife and so on. You're still left wondering whether it means the church. It's possible there may be some inclusive reference here. That the body that was offered and the body that was created as a consequence are so linked together in the mind of God that he puts it that way. We are reconciled unto God by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ because it says it's by his blood. And we are reconciled unto God in that new company which is called the body of Christ, the church having slain the enmity thereby. Another friend was trying to make this a marriage relationship because of the reference to the twain. But somebody else said, well, you don't generally have to slay an enmity before you can get married. If you do, there's trouble brewing for you afterwards. Oh, there's no marriage relationship here. Marriage is yet to come. This is the perfect man being called out here 
And the bride will be ready for him in that day, but not just now. And then it says, he came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. To you far off, that's a Gentile. To them that were nigh, that was the people of Israel. Because that was their distinctive characteristic. But through him, we, the both, had access and what an access. So wonderful is that access that chapter 3, 12 says, in whom we have boldness and access. With confidence. Boldness, confidence, with access. By the faith of him. But through him, we the both, we the Jew with all our scruples, gone. We the Gentile with all our personal uncleanness, Removed. We the both have access by or in one spirit under the Father. And so once more we've reviewed a very marvellous passage. I hope that you'll realise some of the peculiar advantages of being a poor outside Gentile in this day of grace. For although we were outsiders Christless, hopeless and godless, to us has been reserved more glory, more grace than can be found in any other part of Old or New Testament. Just as they commented at the marriage of Cana and said to the leader of the feast, you have kept the best wine until now. Well, most surely our God has done that. But here we've got overwhelming grace which sets us on a perfect equality with one another, neither one boasting of his fathers or his promises, but every one of us boasting only in the benign. I'm so arranging these meetings that if possible, we get right through to the conclusion of this uh, doctrinal section in chapter 3 before we have to, I have to discontinue them by the visit to America. And that will make a, a set of records that will be complete, even though there's the great section of four or five and six yet to be considered. So next time we meet together, we shall be dealing with the remaining parts of chapter two, and only the chapter three, and then I trust that every one of us will be begin to realise what we owe under God to the prisoner of Jesus Christ to us Gentiles, who so faithfully stood against misunderstanding and misrepresentation, that this blessed truth may continue right through to us.